In Canada, where we're from, uh, the original six has a particularly poignant meaning, of course, because those are the original six uh, Canadian teams like uh, Toronto, Detroit, and so on. And uh, I also find that as, uh, as I get older, people get kinder and kinder. And it was very nice that they asked, uh, asked me to be part of this. I, uh, I kind of volunteered, <laughs> it must be said. The nucleus of the cell stands out. Uh, with standard histological techniques, often what the students see is the nuclei, not the cytoplasm. And furthermore, the chromosomes in meiosis and mitosis present a fascinating vista of nuclear structure and function. And the genetic ratios observed by Mendel uh, are immediately related to these processes of cell division. The establishment of nucleic acid as the carrier of heredity and the discovery of DNA and its roles in inheritance and in protein synthesis uh, present us with a fascinating journey of discovery. And that also draws attention to the nucleus. The role of the cytoplasm in heredity, in DNA function, and in protein synthesis can be underestimated, but it is gaining attention at present. And this paper attempts to describe a holistic view of cell functions as it pertains to cellular complexity and the roles played by nucleus and cytoplasm. So first, a few comments about classical genetics something which I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Mendel and his rediscoverers worked in continental Europe. However, the new discipline or subdiscipline of genetics really took off and was very influential in Britain and in the United States. The contribution of two biologists are particularly significant. First of all, William Bateson was an established and respected uh, British and, uh, embryologist when he heard of Mendel's work and of its rediscovery. And he coined the word genetics. And he worked vigorously to establish the field of genetics as a field of study in Britain. And Mendelian genetics gained uh, or, or grow, grew rapidly in uh, Britain. And so Bateson and his uh, student uh, Punnett translated uh, Mendel's pioneering article into English, and he broadened Mendel's theory to include animals. And through this work and that of others, genetics developed into a discipline, a discipline that was separate from the study of reproduction or generation, as it was sometimes called in general. And Thomas Morgan uh, continued this trend and continued much to our understanding and contributed much of our understanding to genetics. Switching from embryology to genetics, he also selected uh, in an ingenious way the uh, organism Drosophila melanogaster, much to the dismay of some students. And so as his research organism, uh, it contributed so much and on the working with uh, Drosophila he uh, Morgan and his lab discovered such things as mutation linkage sex linkage crossing over and he worked uh, this group was uh, 
located at Columbia University where the fly room became famous. And so this supplied much evidence for Mendel's laws. And like Bateson, Mendel began, uh, Morgan, like Bateson, Morgan began his career as an embryologist. However, when, it, when he was engaged in genetics, he deemed the relationship between the genetic factors, the genes, and their uh, effects to be of secondary importance. And in 1926, he stated, the sorting out of the characters in successive generations can be explained without reference to the way in which the gene affects the developmental process. So that the way that the effects were achieved was kind of like a black box that people were quite willing to leave unopened. Evelyn Fox Keller discusses the nuclear monopoly and the disregard for developmental processes which bring about the effects of genes. She speaks about the discourse of gene action. And the discourse of gene action means ignoring the way that genes uh, assert, exert their effects. And so Morgan and other geneticists were content to speak of gene action without knowing the mechanisms by which these actions are achieved. Embryologists continued to remind uh, cell biologists of the importance of the cytoplasm. They stressed that all cells of an early stage embryo receive the same hereditary information and that it is the cytoplasm that gives the impetus for the early differentiation of cells. Even Morgan reminded biologists, um, contrary to the comments I cited earlier, the implication of most genetic interpretation is that all the genes are acting all the time in the same way. This would leave unexplained why some cells of the embryo develop in one way and some in another, if the genes are the only agents in the results. Thus, embryologists were emphatic to point out the role of the zygotic cytoplasm and the complex interaction between nucleus and cytoplasm. In continental Europe, biologists were less enamored by the Mendelian paradigm, and more reticent to ignore the role of the cytoplasm and the mechanisms by which genes exert their effects. Keller states, the nucleus was the domain in which American genetics, um, the nucleus was the domain in which American genetics staked its unique strengths associated with American interest and prowess, whereas the cytoplasm was associated with European, especially German interests and prowess. Jan Sapp, in a uh, detailed analysis, emphasizes how many German biologists saw the importance of the new genetics, but at the same time espoused more holistic views, and that these biologists studied the entire cell, including the role of the nucleus, of, of the cytoplasm, including the role of the cytoplasm. So they took a more holistic view. Because the sperm 
possesses little or no cytoplasm, while the egg contributes almost all of the cytoplasm of the zygote, Keller suggests that the indifference towards the role of the cytoplasm of embryos is also due to a gender bias. The role of the cytoplasmic dowry, as it is sometimes called, has too often been ignored. All of the mitochondria, for example, that uh, the zygote receive come from the egg. And so it's remarkable that many of the embryologists investigating the role of the cytoplasm, maternal effects, and field of embryology in general, many of the investigators were women. Keller mentions Christiane Nusslein-Volhart, Nancy Hopkins, Catherine Anderson, Ruth Lehman, among others. Now some comments about molecular genetics, and I tried to make that as short as I could because it has been talked about so much. So I will, this will maybe be telegram style. With the discovery of, uh, of DNA, the structure of DNA by Watson and Crick, in 1953, attention fell once again on the nucleus of the cell. And within 20 years, the nature of the genetic code, the role of several RNAs and the ribosomes, and the control of protein synthesis by DNA via RNA were elucidated. In 1958, just five years later, obviously, uh, Francis Crick published a fascinating paper which outlined the triumphs and challenges of molecular biology at the time. He recognizes the sequence of nucleotides in the DNA uh, to be the code for the incorporation of 20 amino acids into protein chains. And RNA was seen to be a key in this incorporation. The DNA, was not under, uh, the DNA code was not understood yet. But he thought uh, that it must be some kind of triplet code. There's several possibilities. Some of them, as he suggested, might be overlapping and, and so on, that sort of thing. Several kinds of uh, DNA codes were suggested. Uh, and then a few years later, of course, we, uh, it was discovered how it really worked. Crick, at that time, also formulated in words, the central dogma that DNA controls the synthesis of RNA and then RNA of proteins, and that this order cannot be reversed. He was emphatic that information could not pass from proteins to nucleic acids, or if you want, from the uh, somatic line to the germ line. And considering what was known at this time uh, about these matters, uh, Crick's hypotheses must be considered to be a stroke of genius. The nature of the genetic code and the mechanisms for protein synthesis were discovered not long afterwards. Howard Temmins and David Baltimore's discovery of RNA retroviruses and their enzyme uh, reverse transcriptase appear to contradict the central dogma because in retroviruses, the first step in which the RNA of the virus directs the synthesis of a daughter DNA goes against the flow of the dogma. In spite of these findings, Crick once again in 1970 reiterated the central dogma 
emphasizing its value and application in molecular biology and gave it the familiar short form with arrows, as you see it on the overhead. Most people say DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein, but you know that in itself it makes some assumptions. But that was the central dogma. And, uh, but this central dogma, as you see it, while emphasizing the nuclear importance, also hints at the importance that the cytoplasm will be shown to have. Recombinant DNA technology would again emphasize the importance of DNA. Successful application of uh, the, the knowledge of DNA in recombinant DNA would depend on a thorough understanding of what the cell does and of what RNA does and, and how protein play, uh, synthesis takes place. Sequencing of DNA was next, of course, and it was aided by the development of the polymerase chain reaction and improved sequencing reaction, uh, in, uh, sequencing equipment. And these developments were paralleled by the identification and characterization of genes for human traits and illnesses. And the optimism about treatment of some diseases seemed at times little more than a ploy for increased research funding. And so in 1992, uh, Richard Lewontin uh, expressed his uh, reservations. According to the vision, we will locate on the human chromosomes all the defective genes that plague us. And then from the sequence of the DNA, we will deduce the causal story of the disease and generate a therapy. Indeed, a great many defective genes have already been roughly mapped onto chromosomes. Because causal stories are lacking and therapies do not yet exist, nor is it clear when actual cases are considered, how therapies will flow from a knowledge of DNA sequences is not known. It is clear that the next step would have to be the sequencing of the human genome, the holy grail of molecular biology, as it has sometimes been called. The project started under the uh, leadership of James D. Watson and gained speed as sequencing equipment improved and Craig Venter, working at a private firm, uh, Solera Genomics, used, a different, uh, used different techniques, uh, sometimes called the shotgun approach, and uh, so he established his version of the genome. And the joint announcement of the completion of a first draft of the human genome on Monday, June 26, 2000, was a momentous occasion. The, president of, uh, the presence of President Bill Clinton and his role in bringing the principles of the public and private sequencing institutes together certainly made it that. Dr. Francis Collins, who had become the head of the Human Genome Project and Venter, agreed to bridge the differences between public and private approaches to enable the joint announcement to be made. Dr. Collins, an evangelical Christian and member of ASA, and since 2009, director of the National Institutes of Health, has described various aspects of his life and his works in two uh, recent books, and it was great to see him at this conference. So in this first part of the paper, I have briefly described the importance of the nucleus of genes of DNA and the tendency of some biologists 
to isolate the gene's role from other cell functions and to overemphasize their importance. In the second half of this paper, there may be some things that may be new to you, and uh, I will examine observation and theories that emphasize the role of the cytoplasm in heredity or that support the existence of mechanisms that operate in addition to traditional hereditary processes. And I've called this uh, section, The Cytoplasm Strikes Back. In spite of the nuclear monopoly and the emphasis on genes, DNA, and the simplicity of the central dogma, there have been various thinkers and lines of evidence that have countered this trend. So first I would like to say something about the complexity of genetic mechanisms. The central dogma, DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein, and the simplicity of a gene for this and a gene for that would soon be shaken by the sheer complexity of genetic mechanisms within the cell. Life is complicated, proclaims the title of a recent article in Nature. All of us would agree with that. In it, the author goes on to describe that web-like networks better portrays the multiple pathways between many genes and their products and effects. These web-like networks can be so complicated that in some cases they have been referred to as hairballs. This complexity of gene effect relationships is examined and highlighted by Evelyn Fox Keller in her book, The, Com the Century of the Gene. In her book, Keller lauds the Human Genome Project because it has changed our concept of the gene and our ideas about genetics and protein synthesis. When gene action was investigated in labs all over the world, the complexity of the processes were f was found to be uh, just astounding. DNA was found to be of several kinds, coding, regulating, and some was uh, labeled prematurely as junk. Split genes, alternative splicing, genes coding for several proteins depending on how they were read, post-transcriptional modification added to the complexity. Single proteins were found, often found to have several functions depending on regulatory mechanisms. Keller also examines the complexity of how a genetic program shapes the developing embryo. She concludes that the classic image of a gene will be difficult to replace because it will shatter a popular icon. And furthermore, more, uh, gene talk is an effective tool for persuasion, for funding applications, and for marketing gene-based products. A comment about another uh, cytoplasmic uh, complex of, of uh, t op, uh, topics, cytoplasmic DNA. The beautiful structure of membranous organelles in eukaryotic cells, uh, that is cells with nuclear and other intercellular membranes, was a source of wonder and fascination when transmission electron microscopes came into common use. 
I speak from experience. I remember first cutting sections and just seeing mitochondria and so on, or granules in the uh, pituitary gland, granules just loaded with hormone. That was a great time. And excellent high-resolution pictures of these organelles heightened our sense of wonder. Discovered in 1890, mitochondria are known to provide energy in a form usable by the cell for various processes. Each of the many mitochondria in a eukaryotic cell contains several strands of DNA, of circular DNA. And these uh, circular strands resemble the configuration of bacterial DNA. And these genes have been found to code for some of the proteins that function in mitochondria. They are maternally inherited because ova, not sperm, pass on mitochondria to the zygote. Lynn Margulis suggests that mitochondria are derived from a symbiotic union of a unicellular organism and a prokaryote by a process called endosymbiosis. And this would explain the similarity between bacterial and mitochondrial DNA. She was first laughed out of the park and then later uh, like her book was re rejected for publication and her papers were rejected for publication and then later it turned out of course that uh, she was probably right. We'll never know for sure because it's still a theory but it's interesting. In green organisms, chloroplasts, the site of photosynthesis, the chloroplasts also have been found to contain DNA and Margulis included chloroplasts in her endosymbiosis theory. Similar to mitochondrial DNA, chloroplast DNA also codes for proteins that are inherent to the function of the organelle, in this case the chloroplast. Mitochondrial DNAs have provided fascinating insights into human evolution. You heard it, you heard it here yesterday from Dr. Potts. And, uh, but also insights into cellular function. Important for our topic is that it is also a crack in the wall of the nuclear monopoly. And another demonstration of the importance of the cytoplasm in the hereditary mechanism of the cell. Mitochondrial diseases, of which there are uh, a number have been identified, are caused by defective mitochondrial DNA, and they emphasize the importance of this DNA. I want to say something also about epigenetic inheritance. Cellular differentiation in the embryo was noted by cytoplasmic factors, most of which were derived from the egg. And when these factors are passed on from one cell generation to another in the developing embryo, this, is called, this has often been called an epigenetic inheritance system. Epigenetic changes are heritable variants that are not due to changes in the DNA sequence. At least that's one definition that has been used. Even though some epigenetic mechanisms are located in the nucleus, they are mechanisms that are not dependent on the primary sequences of DNA. And they do not replace the genetic mechanisms that are commonly described in genetic textbooks. They are relevant to our story because they do illustrate the striking complexity of cellular hereditary uh, mechanisms.
One of those mechanisms is methylation, the addition of methyl groups to specific cytosine bases in DNA prevents the production of messenger RNA or, or transcription in the nucleus, nucleus. And this silencing of genes increases when the methylation is more extensive. And this methylation is heritable. It is passed on in an organism from one generation to another. I also would like to briefly mention histone modification. Chromosomes are made up of DNA and of proteins largely consisting of histones. These histones can be modified by acetylation, by deacetylation, methylation, or modified in other ways. And these changes can increase or decrease transcription, and they can be passed on from one cell generation to the next. A comment about small RNAs. RNAs from 20 to 24 nucleotides long spell, uh, span or exist in all eukaryotic kingdoms in the distribution. They serve as molecular signposts to identify targets of silencing, retroviruses, retro transposons, aberrantly expressed genes, and abnormal developmental loci. Small RNAs are now considered to be part of the epigenetic machinery of the cell. And finally, a comment about prions. Prions are included in some biologists' lists of epigenetic mechanisms. They are small, misshapen cellular proteins that can be the cause of several severe diseases. Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in humans, bovine spongiform encephalopathy in cattle, or mad cow disease, and chronic wasting disease in elk and relatives are just some of the diseases. Various normal proteins can be misshapen sporadically, that is spontaneously or by causes not understood. It can be familial, that is heritable, or it can be caused by exposure to prions introduced into the body. It is this latter case that interests us the most. One biologist commented, just as nucleic acids can carry out enzymatic reactions, proteins can be genes, demonstrating the relevance to our topic. Epigenetic mechanisms are varied. They interact with each other. And there are other epigenetic mechanisms that are not included in my short survey. But because they are acquired characteristics that are passed from one cell generation to another, they are often linked to Lamarckian patterns of inheritance. And quite a few years ago, uh, uh, Hank Bestman and I wrote a paper on Lamarckian mechanisms and, and about you know, the fact that Lamarck never, he's dead, but he never quite wants to go away. He just seems to be coming back in one guise or another. Some comments in conclusion, discussion. The whole cell, nucleus, or circular chromosome in prokaryotes and cytoplasm carry out many metabolic and reproductive tasks. DNA is of utmost importance in these activities, but the picture of DNA as a simple one-to-one -one code for protein synthesis is no longer tenable or prevalent among cell biologists. 
the diverse activities of the cytoplasm, subject of intense, discuss, of intense study, leading cell biologists to more holistic views of the cell. A, uh, a significant point to note at this conference is that a holistic view of cellular phenomena acknowledges created complexity, a complexity, a complexity that reflects the wisdom of the creator. I can recommend this new meaning of creationism to you, namely the respect for the integrity and wholeness of created complexity. It is creation itself that is observation on living cells which is recommending this new meaning. Indeed, the resurgence of discussions of cellular complexity is recommending this new meaning. And one author showing openness, uh, he suggests that the, the, the new complexity discussion is opening the way for more theistic views. And I can give you some references to this, if you like, later on. I, I, uh, I have that with me. And I, will, uh, I hope to work more on this in a more de definitive uh, iteration of this presentation. Other levels of functioning within biology also manifest complexity. Biology textbooks routinely describe several levels of functioning, such as organelles, cells, tissues, organs, organ systems, organisms, population, communities, ecosystems, and the biosphere. These levels manifest their own complexities, complexities that are biological in nature, and such complexities then as the regulation of hormone levels, the intricacies of animal behavior, and the control of population sizes all need their own place in the history of biology in order to do justice to the integrity of, cre of creation and, it, and design. In a sophisticated discussion of the complexity of the living cell, uh, a Dutch worker, Bruggeman, and co-workers point to the usefulness of reductionistic and non-reductionistic approaches to the study of the cell. And these authors suggest that the complexity of the living cell should not be ignored and that this complexity has brought new life to the approaches of systems, biology, and emergence. Attempts to do justice to the complexity of the living cell have led to a new subdiscipline in biology, systems biology. And the goal of systems biology is to construct models for the dynamic behavior of whole biological systems. And its aim is to understand biological processes as whole systems instead of as isolated parts. So in the next presentation, uh, Dr. Hank Bestman will discuss uh, systems biology. In the current edition of a standard introductory biology textbook by Campbell, the concepts of emergence and the uniqueness of biological phenomena are stated clearly in the opening pages. New properties emerge at each level in the biological hierarchy. These emergent properties are due to the arrangement and interaction of parts as complexity increases. I listed, I listed some of the levels of biological functioning above. Emergence has also given rise to levels above the, uh, the biological language, logical thought, thought, art, 
culture, for example. In a talk to come, Jordan Bransma will explore the complexities of emergence theory as it applies to biological theory. Complexity, systems biology, and emergence. These concepts should gain currency amongst AMA, ASA members as they seek to do justice to created reality. Thank you. Probably let this question go. Thanks, Harry. <coughs> we have time for maybe one question. Uh, Harry, uh, the, the work by Craig Bender just recently, where the whole genome was placed in the brain of a prokaryotic system. Uh, but uh, one of the things that he observed is that within 30 generations, the cytoplasm. I don't know where uh, Terry. Yeah. Terry, I, I really like your question. Um, I I don't know whether this is related or not, but it's very interesting that uh, Dolly the sheep died of premature old age. I don't know whether that has anything to do with your question or not, but I will toot the horn of this paper and maybe not answer your question, but I will say this: that he uh, what Venter did. He synthesized the DNA and supplied the cytoplasm. If he would have done it the other way around, that would have been very interesting. But that's not their question. But, <laughs> but let's leave it at that because uh, that's all I can say about it. So thank you.